1: Go to TrustArk.com slash Nimity dash free dash trial.
2: You're listening to Serious Privacy by TrustArk. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal.
1: Last week, we started a short series showcasing three academic papers that were nominated for the European Data Protection Law Review Award, handed out at the Computers, Privacy and Data Protection Conference in Brussels last January. Our guest today is actually the winner of the prize of this year for his paper, Genetic Data, the Achilles' Heel of the GDPR? Question mark. Taner Kuru holds a Bachelor and Master of Laws of Ankara University in Turkey and recently completed an advanced LLM in law and digital technologies from the Leiden School of Law, just a few kilometers down the road from my house here in The Hague. He also just completed an internship at the United Nations Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute, Center for Artificial Intelligence and Robotics. That's a mouthful. My name is Paul Breitbart.
3: And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, are we ready for the unexpected question? This is an easy one, although whenever I say it's easy, it's usually not. What was the last takeout meal you ordered?
2: The last one, it was Zeros.
3: Oh, nice. Yes.
2: Although I'm Turkish, it was a Greek version of the traditional donut. We share the culture in the end.
1: Is there much difference in flavor between the Greek and the Turkish versions?
2: Greek version uses pita. We use the tortilla bread. The biggest difference is that.
3: I like that. I like it a lot. And is that something you often do? Is that one of your favorites or it just happens to be the last?
2: I think I will go with the usual.
3: Nice. Very nice. Paul?
1: It was sushi. Ooh. And that was to in honor for the celebration of the birthday of one of my best friends. So then it's a good birthday dinner.
3: I bet you is your sushi is your sushi there, much like
1: our sushi here. I think so. I'm not sure if I had sushi I mean all of us, us
3: imported it, right? From Asia, right? Yeah,
1: I mean it's it's all like the Japanese versions, but I mean, we also get the California sushi here, the the inside out rolls and the uh, the deep fried shrimp rolls and and all of that, but also the really fresh tuna and salmon and and other fish and cucumber and what what have you. So yeah, I, I think it's pretty similar
3: about how the the different locations put the variations on the food that they've you know adopted from other cultures like the
1: turkish and greek hero we are much better at adapting the indonesian food to dutch standards and other food from our former colonies like suriname and the uh, the caribbean that i think that is more adaptable for the dutch than something like sushi which probably is still fairly traditional
3: And my last meal that we ordered actually wound up ordering two yesterday by accident. So it was Danny's Barbecue. Go figure. And I have to tell you, a lot of restaurants like to claim that they are authentic Texas barbecue, which I'm not from Texas, y'all. Or authentic Southern barbecue, which is much different. And it's not, but it's decent. The biggest problem is nobody makes good southern potato salad other than people in the South. And none of that nonsense with marshmallows and raisins in it. That's disgusting.
1: Okay. I know this is not a cookery show, but what is a southern potato salad?
3: It's usually it's it's very simple. It's, you know, the diced up potatoes with mustard, mayo, eggs, onions, things like that. It's it's not mashed up and creamy. It's got the big chunks of potatoes in it.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's the problem I make. Okay. Not too much, much, but yeah.
3: Yeah, not too much, yeah. But you got to use the right kind of potatoes or it doesn't taste right.
1: And you need to dress them while they are warm. Otherwise, the yes. dressing doesn't set properly.
3: And warm potato salad. Oh, okay. No cooking show. <laughs> Let's actually get down to business. Hey, guys, this
1: will be our next podcast. If we ever start a podcast network, we'll also <laughs> do a, a cooking <laughs> podcast. But for now, we'll stick to privacy. Let's start with the first question. How did you end up in privacy? Because looking at, at your your CV, you have a fairly straightforward legal education. So why privacy?
2: So as you mentioned, I got my legal education primarily in Turkey because of my bachelor. But unfortunately, in Turkey, still privacy is not a hot topic out there, at least while I was studying. While I was working, the code of personal data protection has just been introduced. And I was in the team of consultancy in my law firm. And that's why how I actually got into the privacy domain, so to say. And while I was doing my master's here, of course, it was on uh, law and digital technologies. And the biggest domain in my education back there was related to privacy issues and data protection topics. So this is how I actually ended up as a privacy student, professional, however we call it right now, as a young adult.
1: And why Leiden University? Why did you come to the Netherlands? Apart from our beautiful beaches and our beautiful weather, of course. But
2: well, I was actually already in the Netherlands because I did an Erasmus exchange program during my master's studies in Turkey and I came to Utrecht University for that. And I stayed here for my second master's degree and I chose Leiden University because I wanted to focus on digital technologies or technology in general. And I was checking. The programs and Leiden University was more appealing to me than others because they were giving more diverse options, so to say, regarding their curriculum. And I was already acquainted with the Dutch system and I was already in the Netherlands, so it was more of a practical choice for me, on the other hand.
3: So, are you a lawyer or are you a technologist?
2: I think I would go with a lawyer. Okay.
3: Because your your background and the interest that you have taken in your activities are, are fascinating. And it looks like that is what led you to genetic privacy. So talk to me about that. Why why genetic privacy?
2: Yes. Actually, my answer I think it will reveal why I said that I'm a lawyer. Because while I was choosing the topic for my thesis back during my studies, I was checking the news, what is going on, what might be interesting and what is attracting my attention. And back then I saw this article regarding CRISPR baby. And then I started delving into this domain and thinking like, yeah, this is really interesting and fascinating with the ethical questions that is it is raising. And then I came across with the genetic testing companies like 23andMe, Heritage, Ancestry. And then I... I saw some, I don't know whether they're fictional or they're the true stories, but I saw some stories on Reddit and I also saw some videos on YouTube that people got those tests and revealed that they were actually adopted or there were some family dramas around it. So I said, there is something interesting here because when you share your genetic data, you are not actually giving the information away about yourself but also about others so then my lawyer instinct come up with a question that <laughs> wait a second but this is a fundamental challenge for our legal system because there's another stakeholder involved here and i'm not quite sure whether they are identified as the stakeholder so that's how i started work on genetic privacy and also why i answered your question OK, by saying that I think I'm a lawyer.
3: I like that. So it sounds like a, a lot of people ask how I transitioned from a nurse to a lawyer. And it sounds like your your thought process is the same. You see the the medical or the science, but you think of the law. Exactly. It It always makes you think of the legal complications and implications. I like it. Very yeah, nice. That's
1: really interesting and and maybe just for those who don't know CRISPR is a technology for genetic modification, right? That's also used a lot for plants and animals and and, and other species that we have on this planet.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So, tell us a bit more about this This group privacy idea that you are developing in, in the paper. I know we've been, we've been mentioned actually quite a lot in our data protection courses at Maastricht University that when you are dealing with genetic data that you need to be careful. But you are the first who has actually written about it that I've seen in, in such a way. So what are exactly the issues of, of processing genetic data from a group perspective?
2: Yeah. Well, I can give you an introduction on that by mentioning some of the topics. Like, I think everyone who's listening to this podcast, I think, has heard about genetic testing companies that I just mentioned, like Twenty Three and Me, My Heritage, Ancestry, or some of them may have already took a test or shared their genetic. Data material with research institutions that are trying to understand why some people suffer more from COVID 19 nowadays. Or they might have heard news stories around the world that law enforcement agencies finding criminals they've been looking for de- for decades by familial DNA searching, especially in the United States. Right. Yeah. But while we process genetic data in all these domains, There are several privacy concerns arising, but as I mentioned, one thing makes these issues and processing genetic data quite extraordinary here, because when researchers look into our genes, it doesn't only reveal information about ourselves, but also other individuals who are sharing the similar or the same genetic architecture with us. So... However, these people, which from this point on I will refer to as members of genetic groups, do not even know that these common genetic data is being processed. So in my article, I address this issue by applying several interpretation methods in order to understand whether the GDPR provides any protection for these people, members of genetic groups. But in the end... I concluded that regardless of the interpretation that we apply, the GDPR either expands the scope of its protection to the extent that it causes ambiguous, contradictory, and disproportionate outcomes, or simply excludes genetic groups from the scope of its protection.
3: Let me just clarify what you just said about the GDPR. So are you saying that the current language of the GDPR, if it was applied to this genetic testing environment, is ambiguous, contradictory, or disproportionate, or are you saying that if they were to add in components to address the genetic environment, that it would be disproportionate or ambiguous? And I think I just answered my own question. You're saying right now, there's a possibility that the GDPR could roll in individuals who share genetic data as data subjects.
2: Exactly, exactly. So, I identified two roads so to say to understand what gdpr may or may not do or can or cannot do to protect the genetic groups and the first approach is apply this broad understanding and a broad interpretation on the notions of personal data and data subjects which eventually leads to identifying as members of genetic groups as data subjects and therefore provide them with protection within the gdpr but when I checked the outcomes of this interpretation, then I identified some ambiguous, contradictory, and also disproportionate outcomes. But I okay. also identified the other road, so to say, by applying the teleological interpretation, by analyzing the underlying purposes, the telos of the GDPR, and also the aims of the European legislator while drafting the GDPR, That I, then I saw that... Then I identified that actually we cannot identify these people as data subjects because the GDPR actually takes the individual data subjects as a focal point. And when we try to expand the scope of its protection to the groups or the individual or individuals other than the data subject, then the GDPR is actually going through a system overload that I identify it.
3: I like that. The GDPR is a system overload.
1: So should we be concerned that the group privacy is not covered as explicitly in the GDPR? You you mentioned this example with, with genetic data, but from a, a whole different perspective, we have a similar problem when you speak about the financial the payment services directive, which also protects personal data and requires consent, but then The individual making or using the payment services, the fintech services, would then also give consent to process the personal data of all of its network to whom money was paid or money was received from. So also there you might be able to argue that there is a need for some form of group privacy to be included in these modern data protection laws as well.
2: Exactly. 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 I... Specifically also mentioned in my article, Professor Floridi's approach, while he says that in the, big, the, in the era of big data, the individuals are targeted not in the, as individuals, but as members of groups. I think we all need to think about what are the ways to actually protect the groups themselves when the idea of protecting individuals would eventually lead to protection of groups or the society eventually would, would
1: fail.
3: That's an interesting concept.
1: It is, and that would also be similar to the slicing and dicing that all these online advertising companies do, because also for them, it is not just about you as an individual, but it is about what you represent in in, in terms of your purchase power, basically.
3: Well, not only that and and I'm so sorry. We we're, we're totally going to take your concept and and explode it here, but it it really is a fascinating concept because if all the individuals within a group don't have the same level of protection, then you have indiv- well, you have varying levels of protection within the group, but can you bring the protection of the group up to the highest level of protection for the individuals within the group, or do you lower it to the least common denominator? So how do you protect the groups extrapolated from how you protect the individuals? And it's a, it's a fascinating concept there. Does the group get to benefit from it? So if I'm in a group and I want protection, do I just invite someone from the EU into my group?
2: Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, in my article, I argued that the GDPR doesn't allow you to do so even if you include someone in your group.
3: So I need to go find someone from South Korea because they have really strong privacy laws.
1: You can always try. It, it is a fascinating debate and I think we have given you some some ideas maybe for, for future papers. But going back to, to the genetic privacy, is it in itself problematic that private companies are processing all these genetic this all this genetic data shouldn't we also put some limits to what is possible there i mean all these funny dna tests i mean indeed looking at your heritage but also getting your personalized fitness schedule or your personalized diet recommendations all based on so called dna analysis you hear i'm pretty skeptical should companies be allowed to do that in the first place
2: I mean, of course, there's there's always benefits by thinking skeptical about these genetic testing companies and genetic research institutions, even. But there are also advantages for there. There are also advantages when we look at what these genetic testing companies are doing, because nowadays there is this great effort in personalized medicine or precision medicine that is actually contributing a lot to what is going on in the medical domain. But of course, I also understand and trying to tackle the problem when we leave all the protection scope in the hands of private companies, because if we look at what is going on right now, it actually, the stakeholders here are the participants and the institutions who are actually analyzing the genetic data. and. In principle, the person who participates in this test has nothing against the take, has been taken place at the first hand. But the problem arises here when other people are actually opposing what is going on with the common genetic data. Because one person, may, let's say my sister, can participate in this test, but I might be opposing what is going on with her genetic data, which is actually my genetic data as well. But I have no right to... To stop her. Exactly.
3: You know, and that's interesting because, and I'll be honest, I have not studied the genetic testing laws overseas, but here in the United States, they limited what the private genetic testing companies could... I don't know if they limited what they could test for, or they limited what they could share with people that it explored, because you had to stay away from anything that was diagnostic. So they had to pull back on the information they shared. But I did participate in uh, a genetic testing because of my privacy class. So I, I claimed it as an education expense just to see what this experience was. And so I'm in the system. And one of my daughters is now in the system. I don't share mine. I don't like being alerted to potential relatives. But I do admit every now and then I get curious because they will go in and add more information as they develop the technology to identify more information. So my report is not static. I can log in at any time and they will have added additional information to it. So it's fascinating because... And y'all tell me, is this a controversy overseas? Is that here we have populations that don't participate in genetic testing because they it's not part, they don't want to. But yet I'm sure there are members of those populations who have participated in it. So are they jeopardizing the philosophy of the group?
2: Exactly. One of the very famous case from the United States, I can mention is the Havashpai case, I'm not sure if you have heard about that case where the genetic data has been collected from that indigenous population, but then used for other purposes than has been disclosed to the members of that indigenous group. So it caused a problem there, but also taking the discussion to another domain. If we give also rights to your genetic groups or other members of genetic groups, then We might have cases where your sister can have the right to access to your genetic data. Then it might also cause problems because I don't think the answer here, the proper answer here is that, okay, for the utmost protection, let's give these people also rights arising from the GDPR because then we will have conflicts between individuals over the same data. And we don't know how the GDPR can answer those questions because we don't have that diversity among data subject rights.
3: Right. And it it seems common sense that the rights would default to who owns it. And of course, if I'm the person that submitted the genetic material, then I should own it. But when you share genetics, that's Interesting. Does that go as simple as, well, if you share a house with someone, you're sharing a physical address?
2: Exactly. But it is not that sensitive. That's true. Think about all the health information that we can extract from your genetic data. It is not the same that you share your sister, you share your house with your sister. You share maybe all your health information that might be very, very important for you to identify a possible cancer type in the future.
3: You know, and that makes you think of the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act here in the United States, which I think you looked at. And that, of course, is about medical information on relatives or informational relatives that might, you know, have a medical connotation to it. Something as simple as asking, you know, how's your grandfather doing if he's in the hospital? And that's genetic. Yeah.
2: Let me then introduce another dimension here. Let's say we say we oblige every test taker to obtain consent from their next of kin that they can identify. Ah. But you don't know that you have been adopted. You were adopted.
3: Right. And then...
1: Or you're no longer in touch with some of your relatives. Exactly. You don't
2: like them. Your, your father or your mother can say, because they know that they are not your biological parents, and maybe they don't want you to know about that fact. So when they oppose for you to take that test, then there might be some family dramas.
1: Well, if you do take the test, there will be some family dramas too. So
2: Anyway,
3: there have <laughs> been famous cases of the family drama, exactly. right? But Paul, you had a question burning.
1: Yeah, I was just coming back to to the example that you or the 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 ethical issue that you raised before about raising or lowering standards for the group to make sure that everybody has the same level of protection, and that also that of course also brings into play the non discrimination principle, which is also a fundamental right, not to be discriminated. And as I've advocated many times, I think by now also here on the podcast, is that data protection is not an absolute fundamental right. It always needs to be seen in balance and in combination with all the other fundamental rights that we as human beings have. So maybe that would be an angle that, that would help you actually address the group privacy from the non-discrimination perspective. And, and Recital 4 of the GDPR would actually bring that into the into the discussion.
2: Exactly. And thank you for also mentioning the non discrimination provisions that we have. Of course, we have non discrimination provisions in international conventions or declarations as well. However, that was the main concern that I was, while I was writing my article in the first place, that our current legal system has not been designed to answer or include those concerns. Because after especially GDPR came into force, all issues regarding genetic research or processing genetic data has been addressed through GDPR. But when we take into consideration those non-discrimination provisions, they are more or less all of them, not all of them, but more or less all of them, covering the provision of any individual, sorry, no individual Will be discriminated based on their genetic group or something along this line. But when we look at the GDPR that we have right now, it doesn't cover that fact. And we're still trying to understand whether we can protect genetic groups or members of genetic groups through this provision, through this regulation. So I think the mismatch comes to surface because of the fact that maybe fortunately, maybe unfortunately, Processing of genetic data is not the hot topic out there. I said maybe, fortunately, because we didn't have such a scandal that caused by processing of genetic data that led to people to be not able to receive, let's say, proper magic- medicine or treatment or like causing family dramas. But unfortunately, because inevitably, these problems will arise in the future, especially taking into consideration the emerging genetic technologies. I mean, today we're even talking about the dating apps based on genetic information or genetic data. So I am pretty sure that we will talk about these issues quite soon. But our legal system has been designed by taking into consideration the misinformation or online targeted advertisement, uh, uh, advertising or... Yeah, I mean, well, there's
3: a there's a concept. So I, I want to touch on two of these that you, you tweet. Well, three that you tweak me. Sorry, Paul, I got a list here going. <laughs> <Feel that. laughs> so, one, when you mention that we don't have current scandals driving attention to this, you're so right. Law is made by passion and emotion of something that horrified someone that comes up a car wreck where babies were were you know, killed because of not being in seat belts drives or car seats drives the need for regulation on car seats. So there's usually some sort of very emotionally driven reason to do this. So that's a very interesting point. I like that. We know the law doesn't keep up with technology, but then you mentioned dating apps based on genetics. So I want to come back to that one. But this last point that you made about the genetics and the company and everything. So I think it relates into the third-party doctrine concept that we have here in the United States that the government can go to a third party and get information without the same level of scrutiny that they can go to the individual and get information, which is clearly a point of contention between us and the EU. But it's interesting that you bring that out. And you can respond to any of what I just said, but you just made me start thinking which is not good.
2: That's good because I'm a lawyer. I always answer the questions as it depends because it, <laughs> because one question raises many other questions. And I'm not sure if it's a common uh, proverb or just to, we use among Turkish lawyers. We always say when there are two lawyers, there are three opinions. So it is nice yeah. to have even more questions <laughs> when you ask me another a
1: question.
3: It is you, you really made me think. Okay, so so give me an example of a dating app
1: based on genetics. I'm sure that Do you really have one somewhere.
2: I I'm not sure if they're develop, if they're developing or not, but I have seen it on the interview in the interview of George Church, if I'm not mistaken on his name, and he was saying, I think it was in 60 Minutes on CBS. So I saw it there and I found it fascinating in my legal mind, but all right, because because as a lawyer, it's really fascinating for me to explore such a domain. But on a human level, I also thought about it. Hmm. Do we really want this? Are we really ready for such a thing? Would I use it? Had there been such dating app out there?
3: You know, there is a hereditary disease, I believe, in the Jewish population. I think that's the only situation in which I've heard of genetic testing in relationships being required or recommended, maybe.
2: Could be. I don't know about that genetic disease, but yeah, definitely it raises ethical concerns when we're talking about dating apps based on genetic data.
3: Yeah, it's for Tay-Sachs disease. So, but that's interesting because I mean, if you take that concern and then you extrapolate it across general dating,
1: I mean Exactly. So, we've we've looked at this from the EU angle and from the US angle. What about what about Turkey? What about your home country? Is there any anything on genetic data in the Turkish data protection law? And for our listeners who love abbreviations, I think that's the KVKK. Yes would I like that
2: well not specifically we, we don't have a specific provision under that kbkk the Kaka in turkish but we have a decree on patient rights and it has a provision on right not to know so it can also apply for genetic testing or genetic research so it might also have a third party effect, which I'm exploring in my second master's thesis actually, but I'm still yet to come to a conclusion on that
3: So you're saying there's a there's a patient's right of not to know, so if they get genetic testing and the doctor wants to share it, the patient has the right to say no, I don't want to know that. don't tell me
2: Yes, I can say like that
3: okay that's pretty fascinating i like that
1: so what what's next in privacy for you before we started the recording you mentioned that you like the world of academics is that where we where we will see you in a few years down the road lecturing at one of the universities on data protection and privacy and genetics
2: well i hope so i would like to carry on with this research actually as a phd student so you might see me in the upcoming years lecturing or giving some talks on genetic privacy again,
1: hopefully. Very good.
3: I'm just utterly fascinated, Paul. I'm sorry. I want to sit here and talk about more genetic testing and screening and protections for genetics, but I am just truly fascinated by the concept of protecting groups.
1: Yes. I'm sorry, but that really just grabs me. It's certainly something that sh- somebody, if not Tanner, then maybe somebody else should look into in, in much more detail, because. I think you're right there is there is lots more there than than currently sees the eye but unfortunately this is all we have time for this week so no. on this note I would like to thank our listeners for listening to another episode of Serious Privacy thank you for all your kind comments that you that you sent to us if you like our series also please do tell your friends and colleagues about us and rate and review our episodes in your podcast application should you have any questions or suggestions, and especially if you would like to be a guest, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or via Twitter at Podcast privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol Until next week, goodbye. Bye y'all. That was serious privacy. Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further.
0: Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI.
1: TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively.
0: And here's the kicker: protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software
1: because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting.
0: TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security.
1: Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemacy Privacy Management Accountability Framework.
0: If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts.